Living a, a holy life, as Christians are called to do, is not easy. And that's where you could say, Amen, if you choose to do so. Our text today is, is clear on that matter. As a matter of fact, our text says living holy is a constant struggle. Peter wrote to believers who are being persecuted for their faith. Some were being ridiculed by their former friends because they no longer joined them in their sinful way of life. Persecution was making the believer question, you know, why am I putting up with this? Why not go with the flow and and just enjoy the things that I used to enjoy? You know, our culture has this philosophy that says you only go around once in life so you grab all you can get, right? That's kind of the view that our, our world has. But Peter counters that way of thinking by saying, yes, you only go around once, but then you stand before Jesus who suffered for your sins, and who would judge the living and the dead. In light of that, Christian, believer, professor, follower of Christ, your intent, your purpose in life is to pursue holiness. Any suffering you encounter for Christ's sake, for living for Him, should strengthen you to live for the will of God and not for the lusts of men. I kind of gave you on your handout something a little bit different this week. There's a, a setting uh, to kind of help you understand what Peter's addressing here. Believers were being persecuted because they would no longer engage in the sinful lifestyles of unbelievers. That's what Peter's dealing with here. Imagine, think about it. How many of you have ever had that happen to you? You live out your faith. You stand firm for Christ and someone ridicules you. Someone makes fun of you. And what's the first thing that happens when that comes? You're kind of like, how can I get out of this? What can I do to get them off of me? And a lot of times it's easy just to fall back and go along with the crowd. And when you do that, what happens? Everything goes back and, and you don't have that to deal with. On your handout there, here's the main idea. Prepare yourself for suffering. That's the idea of arming yourself there. And we're going to talk about that. Prepare yourself for suffering, which means living holy lives as you do so. Prepare. Get ready. If you live for Christ, if you stand for Christ, at some point in time, persecution is going to come. Not necessarily physical persecution, but there's going to be some verbal, uh, some slander, some ridicule that's going to come your way if you stand for Christ. And Peter's going to be saying, you need to prepare yourself, you need to arm yourselves and get ready for that. And in the meantime, when that happens, when it comes, you need to be living holy lives as it comes, as that happens in your life. So that's the main idea that's going on here. So if you look at verses 1 and 2 in your handout, there's an attitude that we're to adopt. He says, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered, that's for us. He suffered. Jesus suffered. He died in the flesh for us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Verse 1 is continuing this idea. That's the reason you have the words since or therefore. And there's a kind of a corny phrase among preachers. When you say the word therefore, you need to know what the word is there for. It's pointing you back to where you just came from, which is verses 17 and 18. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for the, excuse me, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, here's what you do. You arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter says, Jesus suffered in the flesh, meaning Jesus suffered physically, died death on the cross. That's what he's pointing us to. On the cross, Christ died for us. He died for our sins. He took the full force. He took every single drop of wrath that God could pour out on us. Jesus took it for our sins. He took it all. Jesus died. He suffered undeserved wrath for your sin, not His own. We need to be clear on that. Jesus suffered for us, not for His own sins, because Jesus was what? Sinless. Perfect. Peter says that Jesus is our example of suffering unjustly. And in response, believers, he says here, here's what you do. Arm yourselves with that same attitude, that same way of thinking. Arm yourselves, here's an interesting term. It's a military term for a soldier to put on his armor to get prepared for battle. Does that make sense? Arm yourselves. And What does a soldier do when he's putting his armor on? He's getting ready, right? Arm yourselves with this attitude, this way of thinking. This would make sense for the believer because this is one of the many things of a Christian life that Peter deals with here. In particular, we read about this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 11 through 17. That's a familiar passage if we think about it. Anybody remember what goes on in Ephesians chapter 6? Paul says, put on what? The whole armor of God. He walks you through each one of those phases of putting that armor on. It's kind of the same idea. Arm yourselves. Prepare for battle. Peter says, arm yourselves. Notice what he says, arm yourselves with. The same way of thinking. So there's a thinking. There's a mentality going on here. Arm yourself by thinking biblically about yourself and about your life as a Christian. The call here is to be careful that you're, you're, you're thinking about life, your life, in the same way that Jesus thought about His life. That's it. Arm yourselves. Get ready for battle. Put on the armor with this same way of thinking. You think about your life in the same way that Jesus thought about His life. That makes sense, does it not? A follower of Jesus would think like Jesus thinks. So what is that way of thinking? Going back to chapter 3, verse 17 again. Notice what it says. For it is better to suffer for what? Doing good. If that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is saying, believers, you're to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Jesus had, the same way of thinking that Jesus had concerning suffering. Here's how you're to think when it comes to that particular subject. It's better to do right. It's better to live holy and suffer for it than it is to do wrong and avoid suffering. Does that make sense? These people are being persecuted for their faith and they're thinking, man, if I just back off on this Jesus thing, it'll go away. No, it's better to do right, live holy and suffer for it than it is to go back to wrong and avoid suffering. Peter's telling the believer to commit himself to godly living regardless of what it might cost him. Just like a soldier prepares for battle, the believer should prepare for suffering. Because he follows Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter is assuming that if you live as a child of God, you have been called to suffer. He actually says that prior to, back in, I think it's 
chapter 1 or chapter 2, it kind of leads me right now, but he says we are called to this. This is part of your life. Expect this. If you profess Christ, it's coming. Suffering in some way will be the general experience of all the people of God. All the people of God, at some point in time, if you stand for Christ, there's going to be some persecution. Not necessarily physical, but other forms of suffering. By the way, we in America, we in Franklin County, we at Red Bud Baptist Church, we have no idea what it means to suffer for Christ. You go to some of these foreign countries and you want to talk about suffering. I read a book uh, a year or so ago by a guy named Nick Ripkin, which that's not his real name, called The Insanity of God. And he talks about how he did his research on Christians who were suffering. And in one particular country, he was revealing uh, to them, and by the way, he'd been a missionary in Somalia, and that's not a vacation resort, by the way. It's, if there's ever been a place that could be called hell on earth, that's Somalia. He was there and suffered greatly. And he went around the world researching and writing on Christians who suffered. And he suffered greatly. In one particular country, these pastors came to him, hundreds of them. And he was going to train them. He was going to teach them about suffering. And here's what they asked him. Teach us to suffer well. Because we know we're going to prison. And we need to know how to suffer for Christ when we get there. The believer must think like Jesus. The believer needs to have a biblical view of suffering. Notice it says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this is a good place to ask the question. What, is, what does that mean? Before we answer that question, let me, give you, let me give you another question. Why was Jesus willing to suffer? Why was He willing to suffer? To do the will of God? Yes. What was the will of God for Jesus in His suffering? Jesus understood that His suffering was redemptive. It was an act of redemption for others. It was an act of redemption for you and me. Jesus knew that His suffering was God's will, and God's will was that that suffering would redeem. So what does that mean then when Peter says... For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Does it mean that suffering has some kind of magical quality for you and I? That the minute you suffer, you become holy? Is that what that means? No. Your life this past week would probably give evidence of that not being true, would it not? So what does it mean? Suffering for living godly does not mean that the believer has become sinless, but it does mean that he's abandoned a lifestyle of sin, and Peter here is connecting giving up a lifestyle of sin with being willing to suffer for living godly. In other words, giving up is an evidence of Christian maturity. For whoever has suffered and not gone back in the flesh, they have ceased from sin. You've chosen to quit living for you and you've chosen to start living for God and that's a huge defeat, a redemptive thing in your life. It's you saying, I'll be willingly, I'll expose myself to what is uncomfortable and what is hard for the sake of Christ. For whoever has suffered in the flesh 
He's ceased from sin. In other words, there's this idea when persecution comes, you keep the faith. You don't fall back into sinful lifestyle. You keep the faith. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's evidence of maturity and growth in your life. And kind of a way to apply that would be this. To, to avoid persecution, you may think that I'll make it easy on myself. Right? We've, we've been there. I'll make it easy on myself and I'll kind of go back to my old way of life and I'll act like the lost people behave. I'll just blend in and if I do that, what happens? Persecution kind of goes away. And my question for you is this. Is obedience to Jesus more important than your desire to avoid persecution? You need to ask yourself that. Is my... Is my desire to please Jesus more important to me than to avoid persecution? How about when you're around your lost friends or lost people at work or at school? Do you laugh at their dirty jokes or use language that you know is wrong just so you'll fit in and won't be ridiculed? When they party and get drunk or when they participate in inappropriate Sex, and inappropriate sex, by the way, is any sexual act that occurs outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Bottom line, there is no other way. What do you do? Do you attempt to fit in? Fitting in is the easy way, right? Because that removes persecution. What do you do? Do you attempt to fit in? Do you avoid sharing the gospel with your neighbors or your co-workers, your classmates, because they'll label you as a Christian fanatic? You ever had anybody do that? Well, you're one of them Jesus guys, right? Man, y'all are weird. You know what I've learned? When somebody says I'm weird for loving Jesus, I say, you're exactly right. The Bible says that I'm different. That's what weird means, right? Different? There's nothing wrong being weird when it comes to following Jesus. But notice what Peter says next in verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Believers are to live the rest of their lives on this earth in pursuit of holiness, no matter what it may cost. Peter is distinguishing between two very different ways of living. The believer used to live for what? Human passions. Some of your translations may use the word lust or desires of men. We used to pursue whatever it was that gave us the most pleasure, right? Verse 3, we'll talk about that. It'll give us some idea of what that might be. But now as believers, we've made a break with sin and we now live for what? What does the verse say? The will of God. The idea is to do the things that honor God, to obey what He commands us in His Word. Here's what we need to understand. If you profess to be a believer in Jesus, the time you have left on this earth is to be used to do the will of God. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Your mission is to glorify God by doing His will. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. If, you, if you're not familiar with these verses, make yourself a note. And maybe commit these to memory, or at least some sense of having it in your mind as a believer. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. Is that pretty simple? Who do you belong to, Christian? 
try. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You are not your own. Why? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's not about you anymore. You belong to Jesus. Here's a simple question as a a means of application. What is it you're living for, Christian? What do you live for? What is it that motivates your life? How would your life this past week be best described? Did you live for the lusts of men or did you live for the will of God? There's only two options you have. Really, as a Christian, you only have one to live for the will of God. But we shrink back into living for ourselves when we're not our own anymore. Secondly, as a point of application, in times of suffering, here's what happens. In times of suffering, you'll be tempted to question if God is with you, right? You ever done that? Where's God in all this? Here's how you should think. This time of suffering is not a time of God's absence. This time of suffering is a time of God's grace. You're going, you've lost your mind. You have no idea what you're talking about. And here's what I mean by that. God uses suffering as a means to do only what His grace can do, and that is rescue us from ourselves. To rescue us from our bondage to our own desires, to rescue us from our devotion to what we want and when we want it, to be a person who's actually willing to suffer for the sake and the will of God, and who actually finds joy in doing that. Can I tell you something, church? That is gospel transformation. That's what it means to trust in Christ, to know Him. The gospel transforms your life. My question is, do you see that work of transformation in your life? Do you see that? See, there's more to being a Christian than getting your get-out-of-hell-free card and putting that in your pocket and pulling it out ever so often. Being a Christian means something has happened. God has transformed your life. If the Spirit of God comes in, what does that mean? Something has had to happen. Something takes place. Your life has been transformed. You are not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. Verses 3 and 4, Peter says that there's also another way of thinking. The outline says, understanding the present temptation. Notice what he says here, and listen carefully. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Notice what it says. For the time that is past, what? Suffices. This refers to the days before you knew Jesus. The days before you were born again. Notice the word suffice or sufficient. The word means more than enough. It's enough. When you tell somebody that's sufficient, what do you tell them? That's enough. The time prior to knowing Jesus was enough opportunity. It's more than enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This simply refers to what unbelievers do, what lost people do. The word doing here has the idea of the way you lived your life. Peter's point here is that your lives have been filled with more than enough sinning. If you profess to know Jesus, if you profess to follow Christ... (coughs) 
if Jesus has invaded your life by His grace, and by the way, if He saved you, He has, then the old way of living must be, it should be, it has to be something in your past. Now, as a believer, you're to live in order to do what? The will of God. Even when that involves suffering for doing so. Notice the description that Peter gives concerning these desires. They are a, a combination of sexual sin, drinking, and parties. Some things never change, right? In case you didn't know this, the New Testament's not out of, out, of, out of step with time. God's Word never gets out of step with time. Notice here it says sensuality. I'll walk through these quickly. As a lustful indulgence, indecent and outrageous sexual behavior. Living without moral restraint in this area of life. Christian, this is a sin of the past. You had enough time doing this. This is what lost people do. You had enough time doing that. Passions, desire for what is forbidden, sinful longing. It's, it's what drives people to indulge in sin. Their passions, their longing for these things. It's what drives them. Christian, that's in the past. You had enough time doing that. That's what lost people do. Drunkenness. I think that might go without explaining, right? We, we understand what that is, right? Pursuing happiness through the consumption of alcohol. Drunkenness to escape from life. Drunkenness, Christian, that's in the past. You had enough time doing this. This is what lost people do. In case you're wondering, there are other verses that speak to this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And listen to this. Do not get drunk with wine. Is that, could that be any more clear? You're going, well, I don't drink wine. Don't play games. Wine was the only alcohol they had that day. They didn't have Budweiser or Jack Daniels. They had wine. So don't play games with the Word of God. If alcohol abuse is a struggle for you, you would do your best to get as far away from that as you can. Don't get drunk. Then he says orgies and carousing and drinking parties. You can just imagine. These are parties at which just wild immorality would occur. Then notice how he kind of brings this to an end here. Lawless idolatry. It refers to the worship of what is false. And it refers to these things. What all these things add up to is idolatry. And here's the key. What is the idol here? It's the idol of self. If you're not serving God, if you're not recognizing His position in your life, you're always putting yourself into that position. Life is all about you satisfying you. Here's the application. It comes directly from this. Peter says, your past life is sufficient for you to have lived that way. What's the word sufficient mean? Enough. Your mission in this life is to do what, church? To do the will of God. Now, we all struggle with sin, right? 
Wake up and say amen for me, alright? So I know you're here. Alright? We all struggle, right? Amen. Alright. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, let me give you some verses to help you with this, okay? Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. In particular, verse 14, you need to commit to memory. Romans 13, verse 12. So the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. We've heard that before. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Here's the key. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound like what Peter's saying? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the key. And make no provision. That word provision means opportunity. Make no provision or opportunity for the flesh to full, excuse me, to gratify its desires. What does he say in verse 14? Don't give sin an opportunity. Because when you give it an opportunity, what's it going to do? It's going to take it. Don't put yourself in the path of temptation. That might mean that you have to quit watching your favorite TV show because it puts these sexual things in your mind and you can't get them out. Or it may mean to turn down an invitation to go over to a friend's house or to stay away from people or places where you might be tempted to get drunk. Or how someone holds you accountable for your internet use. Uh Uh-oh. They make things for doing that. Particularly men. Not that women are immune to that. But there are things you can put on your computer. I I have some friends that we have this accountability software. And if I click on something that I shouldn't, guess what happens? They get an alert. You're going, "Uh uh-oh. What happens then? What's going on? Verse 4. Don't make opportunities. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In contrast to verse 3, which talks about believers' past, this verse describes what they're presently experiencing. With respect to this, refers, I think, to chapter, I mean, excuse me, verse 3. Verse 4 says, they. With respect to this, they. Those who persecute, they're what? They're what? They're surprised. Surprised means they're shocked, they take offense, or they get resentful. Which causes them to do what? Lash out and... And persecute you. Why why are they surprised? Notice what it says. It's because the believer no longer what? Joins them. Now this word join them in the same is very interesting. This phrase me has the idea of plunging into or running at a rapid pace towards something. And it's toward what in this situation? Sin. They are surprised when you don't headlong go with them into these things. They're surprised when you don't join them. And notice what 
They're surprised when you don't join them in what? The same what? <coughs> flood of debauchery. Does everybody know what flood means? More, more than you can handle, right? An overflow of immoral behavior. People are surprised at the change that takes place in the believer because he no longer plunges himself into that sinful lifestyle. They're surprised when you don't do that. Something's happened to this guy. Something's going on with him. They're surprised. And actually, there's a couple of reasons they're surprised here. You don't do that anymore, but when you don't do that, lost people have a tendency to get offended because it says what? Oh, he thinks he's better than us, right? You ever had somebody tell you that? Which... How should you respond? No, I'm not better than you. Jesus just changed my life. The gospel is where we want to go with those situations. We don't want to get angry and come back at them. They get resentful of you being changed because it makes them what? It kind of opens them up to their own sin and it kind of what? You know how you... Somebody points your sin out to you. What do you want to do? Well, I can't do that, but it's in your mind, right? <clears throat> Isn't it odd how people can ruin their lives and others' lives through alcohol, drugs, or sex, and they don't think that's strange? But when a person repents of sin and he gets right with God and his life changes, they think he's gone off the deep end. Do you see that? How, how, how people's thinking is? Look at the end of verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they do what? They malign you. It means to slander, to defame, or to speak evil of. One time friends become what? <clears throat> Enemies. And they speak evil of the believer because he doesn't what? He doesn't join them. When you stand alone, and by the way, you know what I mean by stand alone, right? God's there. You're not by yourself. But when you stand alone, you open yourself up to misunderstanding and ridicule. People's words and attacks can hurt, right? That old saying when I was a kid, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie. It hurts, right? Here's some application for you. How are you thinking, (coughs) excuse me, when it comes to temptations, that go on around you. How are you thinking? Are you tempted to go back to the old way of life? Because if I do that, what will happen? They'll leave me alone. You know, Jesus was tempted, the Bible says, at all points, just like you and I are tempted. Yet He was what? Without sin. As a believer, you can go to Jesus in the midst of your struggle. It's pretty amazing. And you'll find an understanding Savior because He's been exactly where you are. Here's my question for you. Is there a disconnect in your life? Listen to me carefully. Is there a disconnect in your life when it comes to sin and temptation? Is there a disconnect between your public Sunday appearance and the actual reality of how you live your life the rest of the week? Does that make sense? Is there a disconnect between Sunday and Monday through Saturday? 
Would you be comfortable with having your private life exposed? Would you be comfortable with people knowing, by the way, Jesus knows, would you be comfortable with people knowing what you do in your private life? Is there a disconnect? Are you thinking biblically about temptation? (coughs) Verses 5 and 6. The coming judgment and the hope of the gospel. But they, those who malign you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, before we get started here, you don't use this verse when somebody persecutes you to go, one day you're going to get yours. That's not what this is talking about, okay? But they will give an account to Him. Not you, but to Him. The Christian's enemies persecute you you now, but one day those who persecute will do what? They will stand before God. The judge of the universe, and they'll answer for those things. <coughs> Giving account refers, it refers to judgment at the end of time. Because God is holy, righteous, and just. Listen to me, the world is marching toward justice. We holler, we want justice. Well, guess what? The world is marching toward that. This world is marching toward a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. When you suffer for doing right, we suffer for doing right, we're tempted to cry out that it's unjust, and we want to call those people into account, right? But the Bible's clear. We don't do that. We leave that for who? But they will give an account to who? Him. God's will is not that you do the calling to accounting, but that you hand it over to Him because God is the just judge. (coughs) Peter said in chapter 2, verse 23, they shall give an account to God. Now let me clarify something here. (coughs) Talking about people who treat us unfairly, giving an account to God one day, it's not for us to, to take out justice on them. Don't take that too far as in that we can't judge at any point in time. Because the Bible tells us that we are allowed to do that. Let me give you some examples. There are times when it's right to call someone to give an account. Are you ready? Proverbs 13, 24. Parents must do that for disobedient children. Parents, this is your time. Amen? Alright. Policemen. Must do it for law-breaking citizens. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Employers must do it for lazy employees. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. And church leaders must do it in discipline, the restoring of church members who are caught in sin. Hebrews 13.17. But when you suffer for righteousness' sake, God's will is that the believer leaves the accounting to Him who judges righteously. Notice verse 5 again. Excuse me, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Living are all those alive on earth when the end comes. That's pretty clear. But dead are those who have already died. And here's the point he's making death does not rescue a person from judgment. Hebrews 9 27 says, It is appointed. To men to die once and after that the judgment. Death does not remove you from the reckoning day. The living and the dead shows that judgment is all encompassing. That's the purpose of living and dead. 
If you're alive, and there's only one other thing, there's dead, and there's... That's it. It's all-encompassing. No one's going to escape the judgment of God. The believer is not going to be judged for his salvation. He'll be judged for his works that he did in this life. <clears throat> but notice there, it says, But they will give an account to him who is... What? What's that word? Ready. That makes me stop and pay attention. God is ready. It shows that the final judgment is coming. God is ready to judge the nations. He's ready to judge. The only thing standing between a lost person and the wrath of God is the sovereign will of God. At any moment, Jesus could return and there'll be no more opportunity to get right with God. That's what he's saying. Verse 6. Here's the good news. For this, verse 5. For this, because God's going to judge one day. For this, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead... That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Here's what Peter's doing. He's responding to an objection by unbelievers against Christians. And that objection being that Christians die physically in the same way that unbelievers do. And for that reason, there's no advantage to becoming a Christian. In the end, everyone dies, so why not live and do whatever you want to do? That's the mindset they had. But notice what this verse says. For this is why the gospel was preached. This referring back to verse 5. To save people from what? Judgment. This is what the gospel is. If somebody ever says to you, what is the gospel? Here's what you can tell them. It's sinners being saved from the wrath of God. That's what it all boils down to. Notice it says the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Believers who had the gospel preached while they were alive. That's who that's referring to. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter says, that's why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. So their spirits might live even after their physical death. And the Bible's pretty clear. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The point of this verse is first to encourage believers that even though there's a judgment coming beyond the grave, and then even though all of us die, those who hear, listen to me, those who hear and believe the gospel, what does he say? Will live in the Spirit according to the will of God. All of us face death, right? As a result of the sin of Adam. Adam's sin in the garden, his and Eve's disobedience is why you and I die. That's what Adam's sin did. It brought physical death. So all of us die physically. But the hope of the gospel is this, that there is life on the other side of that, right? We really do believe in eternal life, do we not, church? We don't believe that this is all there is. But we live like it sometimes, right? Second, Peter's point is that believers, even under unjust treatment, should be willing and unafraid to suffer or maybe even die for their faith because they know that all death can do is bring them into everlasting life. 
Now, I'm like everybody else. I think God put a desire in us to live, right? But this life is not all there is, church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. Another, another verse for us to think and meditate on. <coughs> Speaking to Christians. <clears throat> if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. Let me read that again. If we, believer, Christian, have put our hope in Jesus for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. In other words, you trust in Jesus, if you've put your hope in Christ, and it's this life where you've got everything at, you're a pitiful person. Because this is not all there is. Here's what I want to conclude by telling you. This life makes no sense without eternity. God put within every one of us this longing for eternity. This life makes no sense without it. And so you believer, you hold on to God's promise of eternal life. That Jesus came, He lived a perfect life, He shed His blood for sin, He rose again conquering death so that He could give us eternal life. This is not all there is. And those times when you're being teased and those times when you're struggling with temptation and those times when you're misunderstood and those times when you suffer in ways that you never thought you would suffer, here's what you do. Everybody remember Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz? What did Dorothy do at the end? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Here's what you do. This is not all there is. This is not all there is. This is not all there is. Eternity is sure and true and real. And you'll live physically beyond this life forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Praise be to our great God for that hope, right? Amen. Let's pray.